National Archives podcast series. The Road to Jamestown, English Exploration and Settlement of America from 1480 to 1607. 400 years ago today, this week, this month, and this year, about 110 people were doing their best to survive in a small settlement on a marshy island in the James River, known then and now as Jamestown in Virginia. In 1607, the difficulties they faced made the future of this expedition as uncertain as other previously unsuccessful attempts to plant English settlers into North America. In this talk, I want to explain something of the history of how and why the expedition that left London in December 1606 became the first permanent English settlement in Virginia. This is a well-known story, but hopefully by looking briefly at English voyages of exploration as a linked series of adventures during the long 16th century, the eventual success of the Jamestown settlement will be more easily understood. The aims and aspirations of a few adventurers remained the same throughout this century. The hunt for personal fortune through the search for a route to Asia, privateering, warfare and the religious conversion of what was seen as New World savages. The English state was rarely involved, and these voyages eventually succeeded because the group of adventurers shared their skills and learned lessons from earlier tragic failures. This talk is based on the historical sources held at the National Archives, and as such can offer nothing on the rights of the English to force their way into America, their conduct and methods in doing so, or the reactions of the people they displaced or otherwise affected through their settlement. These are ongoing controversies that can easily be followed elsewhere. So we go back a bit into the medieval period and look at how medieval English sailors were familiar with long-distance routes to Iceland, Madeira and the Mediterranean. In what's become known as an age of discovery, in the 15th century, skills of navigation, technology um, were shared amongst Europeans to ensure that sailors of all nations benefited from advances. And it was really the Portuguese who led the way here. Seafaring depended on shared skills and technology. Arab expertise was exploited in the Mediterranean, while mastery of tides and currents in the Baltic and the North Sea ensured that skills in piloting and chart making progressed in Northern Europe during the late medieval period. The Portuguese introduced new sails in the 1440s and this allowed Prince Henry the Navigator to explore Africa beyond Cape Bujur, which is now in Mauritania, in 1434. This broke long-standing cultural, physical and psychological barriers to wider exploration. Portuguese skills soon circulated around the ports of Europe and led to further exploration of the Senegal, Gambia and Cape Verde Islands in 1455 and Bartholomew Diaz around the Cape of Good Hope in 1488. And it was Bristol's close links with Portugal that increased English involvement in these longer voyages. By the 1470s, the Portuguese were actively exploring west of the Azores for Brazil, known to them as the island of Antilla or land of the seven cities, and they thought that it had been populated by Portuguese fleeing from the Moroccan invasion of 1184. These developments, along with Portuguese and Danish collaboration in the seas off Greenland, by 1480 perhaps encouraged Bristol sailors to step up the frequency of their voyages to the northwest. It's also possible that English knowledge of the cod-rich banks of Newfoundland originated at this time. This type of competition only developed through quayside gossip and the transfer of information between mariners. Rumours of the English and Portuguese discoveries almost certainly helped to focus Columbus's ideas on the reality of a western route to Asia during the 1480s. 
but exploration was also an outlet for new national rivalries. While developments in ship design and navigation allowed sailors to undertake longer voyages, Western European states were more stable by 1500, having gone through civil wars earlier in the century. Maritime nations of Spain, Portugal and England came to use the search for new territory as a way to cement authority at home. And the wars surrounding the French invasion of Italy in 1494 were mirrored in a rise of interest in a western route to the riches of Asia. By 1480, there is evidence that Bristol sailors were also involved in the search for the Isle of Brazil. William Worcester records the unsuccessful voyage of John Jay from Bristol, who returned to Ireland after nine months at sea in 1480. Thomas Croft of Bristol was also pardoned of customs offences in 1481 for shipping about 1,500 litres of salt um, to the west to be used to maintain his ships in the search for the island. In the 1490s, evidence from Spanish ambassadors' letters suggests that earlier English voyaging had been taking place. In 1498, Columbus received a report on Cab John Cabot's first voyage from an English spy called John Day. Day confirmed that Cabot's landfall had previously been visited by the English. Also in 1498, the Spanish ambassador noted that Bristol men had been searching regularly for Brazil for the previous seven years. Did Bristol voyages predate Columbus and provide part of the impetus for his expedition in August 1492? We'll probably never know. News of Columbus's voyage and England's failure to recapture lands in France in 1492 led Henry VII to support a plan for Atlantic exploration. Columbus must have revealed something of his plans in 1489 when his brother Bartholomew toured the courts of Europe, including England, to try and get royal support for his expeditions. So the King of England potentially had much to gain with little direct risk to himself. Bristol's existing knowledge of Atlantic exploration was gathered by John Cabot, a Venetian who in 1496 secured King Henry's license to explore on behalf of England. In March 1496, Cabot and his sons were given the right to discover and investigate lands previously unknown to Christians. They did not depart Bristol until May 1497, having already aborted one voyage in Ireland. A quick crossing in a very small ship called the Matthew brought them to the mainland of America on the 24th of June 1497, and whether this was Newfoundland or Maine is still open to debate. After claiming the land for England and tracking the coast for a few days, Cabot returned to London via Brittany by the 10th of August. He was interviewed by the King and given a pension from the customs of Bristol. And you can see John Cabot's original letters patent on the National Archives website under the Treasures and Exhibitions page. Henry VII was rumoured to be interested in following up Cabot's discovery, but any royal reaction is quite hard to find in the records before February 1498. By then, Cabot had produced a map for the court, which is now lost unfortunately, and received a new commission to take six more ships back to Newfoundland. He sailed in May 1498. Spanish letters make clear that they had realised he had already discovered continental land. And Columbus did not reach the mainland in America until his third voyage in August 1498, and all Europeans thought this land was Asia until the Pacific was sighted in 1513. What did the Spanish think of this? Well, we know that Cabot disappeared during his 1498 voyage. Anglo-Portuguese expeditions in 1501 confirmed Cabot's discoveries and found European artefacts, like a broken sword and earrings, amongst the Native Americans they encountered. Some authors have claimed that Cabot was deliberately targeted by the Spanish 
after his earlier successes threatened Spanish discoveries. A map produced from a Spanish voyage of May 1499 places English flags on a coast north of what looked to be identifiable Caribbean islands. This could relate to voyages in 1501 noted above, but speculation implies that Cabot's disappearance had less to do with storms than with deliberate Spanish policy. Cabot's voyages brought small rewards for King Henry VII. The menagerie of the Tower of London was filled up with hawks, big cats and parrots, but nothing in the way of gold and riches. Henry VII might have recognised the potential of Cabot's voyages. He certainly knew that the navigator had the skill to find new land, but he did not return in 1498, and the developments weren't really followed up. England was really interested in the riches of the Oriental spice markets, which Cabot had claimed were within reach. But without Cabot's presence, after 1500, the king's own insecurity and England's European foreign policy scaled back royal involvement in expeditions. Bristol merchants tried to maintain the momentum of Western voyages, and Sebastian Cabot inherited his father's patent and was involved in an Anglo-Portuguese expedition of 1501, which actually brought the first Native Americans back to England. Enough interest was maintained among the merchant class to form a company of adventurers to the newfound land, based on the wealth of royal councillors and London merchants, but not involving the king himself. But royal payments and rewards towards the end of Henry VII's reign, such as four shillings given to a priest going to the new land, suggests some very early settlement of the lands the English had managed to discover. A Newfoundland fish and fish livers were first recorded on the Bristol Customs in 1504, the beginning of a very profitable market. Although Henry VII's backing seemed lukewarm, in 1508 he appears to have given Sebastian Cabot two ships and 300 men to search for a northwestern passage to Asia, and this became Sebastian Cabot's focus for the rest of his career in England. This expedition perhaps went as far north as Baffin Island, scouted along Hudson's Bay, and then coasted to the south to reach Florida, a major achievement for an English voyage despite Cabot's unreliability as an accurate source. But when he returned, he found a new king on the English throne and a new focus for the crown. Cabot was almost certainly aware that the race to Asia was still wide open, but Henry VIII renewed England's rivalries within Europe and not in the New World. Newfoundland fish continued to arrive at Bristol, but there's little evidence that early discoveries were developed or followed up. Sebastian Cabot joined the Emperor Charles V's service in 1513, and England lost a clear advantage over other European nations. London merchants began to trade with the new Spanish Caribbean outposts, but ventured very little to set up their own English bases across the Atlantic. Henry VIII himself showed some interest in map-making, but it was left to individuals to generate interest in voyages of exploration, and we can talk about a few of them now. In March 1517, Sir Thomas Moore's brother-in-law, John Rastall, used his contacts at court to get backing for an expedition to settle Newfoundland. But a mutiny, poor weather, meant that he only got as far as Ireland. His crew then sold most of his, his equipment at La Rochelle in France. Rastall's chief contribution was his play The Interlude of the Four Elements, which was the first piece of English literature inspired by the New World. And from this we can see that the adventuring to the New World and America itself was beginning to enter English po popular consciousness and culture by the early 16th century. 
1520, Sebastian Cabot once again failed to find support in London for a northern voyage. The return of Magellan's ship, Victoria, in 1522 convinced Cabot that the Pacific Ocean was far too massive and an equatorial voyage to Asia would take far too long. In 1526, several Bristol adventurers joined Cabot on a southern trip to find a route to China. Almost four years at sea brought this expedition as far south as the coast of Argentina, but he found no route into the Pacific. The value of this type of voyage was that it involved Englishmen in long-distance voyaging, improved their navigation skills and their resilience on these very long voyages away from home. In 1527, some Englishmen realised that French and Basque traders were exploiting the fishing and fur trades in northeastern Canada through England's failure to act on earlier discoveries. A man called John Rutt secured backing from Woolsey and Henry VIII in this year, 1527, and used a most up-to-date mapping to start a new venture. This was the first voyage to leave detailed records of Labrador and Newfoundland. He also cruised the coast as far as the West Indies. This was the longest voyage hitherto undertaken by any solely English expedition. Unfortunately, it only gained valuable knowledge. No other rewards were forthcoming. The other side of exploration was proved by Richard Hawes' expedition in 1536. He was a London leather merchant who in 1536 seemed to have organised the first tourist trip to North America. He assembled his friends amongst London citizens, lawyers and gentlemen to show them the new world. But he was almost totally unsuitable to equip and lead an expedition across the Atlantic. His poor leadership resulted in shipwreck, near starvation, cannibalism, piracy and financial disaster. The survivors of this voyage only returned home after capturing French fishing ships near Newfoundland and Henry VIII was so embarrassed that he had to pay compensation to the French for this episode, which left English voyaging on a sour note and ended major exploration for a generation. Edward VI's accession brought a slightly different phase in England's interest in exploration. Sebastian Cabot had maintained some ties with Bristol and was still consulted on many of the voyages that occurred into the 1540s. By 1547, rivalries in Spain, his own financial problems and the death of his wife Catalina made his role in Spain difficult and in October 1547 the English Privy Council authorised payments to persuade Sebastian to bring his knowledge and skill back into the service of England. By about 1550, Cabot was using his maritime connection in London to revive the search for Northwest Passage to Asia. It seems that Cabot had played his Spanish and English contacts against each other to advance rumours of his secret knowledge of the route to Asia, and this myth of some sort of secret knowledge was part of the reason why the English became so disillusioned with long-distance exploration. In 1551, Cabot had negotiated unsuccessfully in St. Malo to join a French expedition to find a land route to Peru. After that, he became more interested in trade routes to the Middle East, North Africa and Guinea. He perhaps disguised his real plans with these voyages, since in 1553 he gathered support among London merchants for a northern voyage. This eventually reached Russia and not China via the Arctic, but it did help to establish the London Adventurers and Muscovoy companies. Sebastian Cabot probably died in the autumn of 1557, and his death marks the end of an era in English exploration. His friend and executor, William Worthington, inherited his charts and papers. And this great archive of England's early voyages of exploration 
was used into the 1580s but is now lost. Sebastian Cabot's death ended the domination of his family over England's first wave of Western exploration. Their knowledge had not been widely shared, unlike earlier advances in navigation and technology. The Cabots enhanced the belief that they had some sort of secret knowledge of the routes to Asia, but the failure to turn this into success disillusioned many of the backers and voyagers who could have helped to bring it into reality. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved. <laughs>